Welcome to the AWS Rethink Podcast, here to help you rethink your strategy in the cloud. I'm your host, Nolan Chen. And I'm your host, Malini Chatterjee. Today, we talk about a very important topic, high-performance computing. And we have with us today the Head of Developer Relations for HPC High-Performance Computing at AWS, Brendan Buffler. Yes, welcome, Brendan. We're excited to have you here today. Before we begin, can you tell us more about your role here at AWS? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so, uh, so so my role is an interesting one. So de- developer advocacy inside inside AWS is an interesting kind of gig. It's um, we spend about I, I like to say that we that we have sort of like a two sided two sided job. Part of our job is you know half of our job is to um, explain to customers what our engineers are building for them, how to use these services, how they fit, where they fit, um, and producing a lot of technical content so that they can understand how to how to deploy stuff pretty quickly. And then because we're often out speaking to customers, and, and particularly, you know, my group inside HPC Engineering, we're, we're kind of a bunch of old people in the industry. We've all been around this space for quite some time. And so we've got a really deep knowledge of, of what the customers are doing in HPC. We use that knowledge and we use those thousands of customer conversations we have to bring back inside our product team uh, the kind of the kind of insights that our our product engineers need in order to make sure that when they're building new things, they're building them right. Awesome. So let's get started with the very basic what is high performance computing, Brendan? High performance computing is the most awesome thing. <laughs> I could, That's why you're here. I'm a little biased, of course, but um, yeah. no. So, so HPC is a. It's an interesting. It's a. It's a computational technique. Um, if you, if you, you know, just to zoom out really broadly, HPC is all about using really large numbers of computers to solve difficult, usually mathematical problems that are otherwise intractable or might take a really, really long time. So, um, you know, a good, a good example might be, say, computational fluid dynamics. That's one of the uses of HPC, where if you're, you know, if you want to build a, if you want to build an aircraft, trying to actually design that aircraft wing and the aerodynamics of the plane to get the to get the fuselage the, the correct configuration so that it's you know it's efficient it doesn't use too much fuel it's lightweight and all those sort of things that's a really difficult thing to do and if you do that in the physical world of course there's only so many models that you can build and take to a wind tunnel and test in a wind tunnel it's there's a lot of work involved and really expensive bringing that back into a computer you can simulate all of that stuff and you can actually simulate it in a computer way cheaper than what you can test it in a wind tunnel. But of course, you need a lot of computing to do that. And that's really what HPC's job. HPC's job is to really take a, a big mathematical problem, simulating all of the physics as the fluids, as the air and, and water and everything hits an aircraft wing, and simulate, simulating all of that in math and actually, but doing it in a doing it in a way where you get a speed up by using a lot of computers so that you can do it inside a, a reasonable amount of time. Because if you, you know, in most of these mathematical problems that our customers are solving with HPC, if you ran them on a laptop, it might take a thousand years or a million years. But doing it mm-hmm. on 
doing it on a really large scale cluster, you get you get the result in days or weeks or sometimes hours. Well, I'm glad you brought up um, CFD or computational fluid dynamics because I actually majored in mechanical engineering many years ago. And the first time I heard about HPC was when one of my classmates who has his own company, he told me he was using HPC to do CFD. Now, you mentioned how it does these complicated math problems. Could you talk a little bit more about what kind of special hardware or software is needed for HPC and why, you know, for example, a powerful laptop just won't do? Yeah, so 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 like I said, like like I alluded to before, you know, the 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 powerful laptop approach is it's actually it's actually what most scientists or engineers do first. Their first optimization is just to get a more powerful laptop. You know, when a, when a problem is too hard for their existing laptop, get a bigger laptop or go and get a bigger server. But eventually, eventually you run out of you know scale there. Um, even when you get a really big server and it's got say 96 cores on it, and that's really big compared to a laptop. Um, you've still got this problem that, you know, 96 cores is kind of a limit, right? That's you're, you're still only going to be able to solve a particular problem that's going to fit inside that very big laptop, as it were. And so we, we often see this in scientific research and engineering that you see you see these practitioners working on problems that are, you know, limited by the size of their laptop. And, and they, you know, often a lot of people spend their career limited there. But it's a but it's a shame when they do now. But but to breach that laptop limit or the the size of a single server, you do actually need some some pretty special stuff. So first things first, you know the CPUs matter. Um, the kind of CPUs that we put into into servers really matter because some of the you know all of the modern CPUs have got pretty impressive floating point math units in them. Um, and floating point is of course the the important thing for most of these workloads doing floating point math. So um, gra you know, Graviton, our, our ARM-based processor that's got does an amazing floating point, but so does so do all of the Intel and AMD CPUs that we've been working with over the years. So there's a there's a bunch of work that has to be done there to really you know to make those processors work fast. Um, Graviton 4 just doubled the amount of L2 cache per core, and that's going to have a really big impact for a whole lot of these codes, in particular, you know, CFD. We expect it to have quite a quite a big benefit for CFD. We increase the memory bandwidth on those chips, right? This is all just stuff that we announced, uh, you know, last month at, at reInvent. And so all of these things matter. CPUs matter. Memory bandwidth matters. But then eventually you hit the limit of what that one single node can do, that, that single machine. And you have to go further. So that's when we have things like MPI and fancy networking, uh, because um, uh, in the, in like in a domain like fluid dynamics, you can only scale the problem up if you can keep all of the individual cores across all of the servers that are running in parallel. If you can keep them all communicating with each other really well, right? So it's a right. so it becomes a super important part of the technology is communications, because uh, once you've got, once you've breached the boundary of a single server, everything becomes as slow, or at least as fast as the slowest core, right? Because if you're if you're solving a problem in parallel with a lot of with massive parallelism, thousands of cores, everything is as fast as the slowest core. So you actually need all of the cores to be able to communicate their state with each other very very quickly, and that actually usually means a lot of network traffic, um, and that actually means 
some special libraries to handle the communication so it's done efficiently, and then often some special networking to make sure that it works really well. Okay, so definitely it sounds a lot more complex than just, you know, replacing that laptop and just buying a bunch of servers. You need special chips, special networking. So it makes me wonder, like, it sounds like this is, is something that only companies with, if they're doing heavy-duty HPC, they need a lot of resources, right, to get just the hardware and all the software working together. Is that, does that sound right? Yeah, it definitely is. So, and, and look, that's actually one of the reasons why I, I do what I do. So, you know, before I came to Amazon, um, I used to work in a hardware company. I built supercomputers for a living, you know, machines the size of a house. That's kind of the canonical um, HPC scenario. And, you know, it, it what it, you know, it occurred to me um, the the. It's, all, it's, it's difficult with those kinds of really large-scale machines. They're great big shared facilities. For any normal person on the street or more to the point, say, normal engineer or normal scientist to be able to get their hands on one, they usually have to do a lot of begging and borrowing and stealing, a lot of applying for merit allocation times on publicly funded national clusters or a lot of petitioning to their boss to buy more capacity for the company's HPC cluster. These are all, you know, it's difficult stuff and it's expensive stuff. Um, and if you've got a $25 problem, it seemed to me always that it's great if you can find a $25 solution to a $25 problem. Um, but, you know, it, in, in, in HPC a decade ago or so, a $25 HPC problem, you needed to be accessing a $25 million system. And, and those are rare. Right. So, you know, one of the things that really motivated me to move to AWS and do what I'm doing, it was exactly that, was to figure out how can we get the most common workloads? How can we get um, uh, all of these techniques packaged up and made available to anybody who's got a problem to solve? Right. And that's a, you know, it's 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 been a tough it's been a tough gig because we've had to build a lot of stuff. We've had to build a lot of CPUs, a lot of networks, a lot of file systems. But I think we're, you know, I think we've got there and we're actually making really quite a big difference now. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the wonderful journey to hear from you, uh, Brendan. So you did mention about the CFD, computational fluid dynamics, how when you are explaining like what essentially is high performance computing. But um uh, can you let us know a little bit more into what are those other types of workloads other than CFD, which are very common, and what are those common use cases for the customers for HPC? Yeah, it, it you know safety is a safety is a fun one because I think everybody understands what an aircraft looks like. It's an easy one to explain, but some of the other ones are a little bit you know I I think much more personal and much more interesting. This is the stuff that gets me out of bed every morning. It's it's actually the reason why I do HPC and I don't do, I don't know, enterprise workloads or databases, right? Um, um, I love HPC because of the things that it's used for. So genomics is a really big, is a really big mm -hmm. use case uh, for HPC. Um, drug design is a really big use case for HPC. I, you know, I'm a recovering physicist. Um, I'm fully recovered, by the way. Um, but... <laughs> Um, you know, and so you'd sort of expect that the physics you know, physics things would be more interesting to me. But personally, I find the healthcare and life sciences applications 
really absorbing because they're personal. They make a they make a big difference. You know, we worked with pretty much all of the um, all of the big companies and big research organizations that were working on COVID vaccines. Mm-hmm. We were involved in most of those activities, helping them with their compute so they could design drugs, simulate molecules, simulate interactions between, you know, between the drugs and the proteins in your cells, all of that stuff that this was, you know, they needed to do this at scale and really urgently, of course, because the whole world was watching. Um, this was a, you know, and, and to me, that was kind of the, it was the exemplar use case of how cloud can make a difference in this space. And then genomics, of course, I mean, I don't think, you know, I, you know, most, most of the, most of my friends have gone and used something like 23andMe to get their, to get their genome characterized. Um, mm. And, you know, we're all interested in seeing what kind of, you know, family characteristics might, might we have inherited, but more to the point, what sort of things should should we be looking at in terms of managing our long-term health? And the ability to actually derive those insights, you know, this is this all comes from a large field of scientific study called bioinformatics. And bioinformatics is really it's the it's the mathematical number theory of genomics. Um, and you know, really this is a this is a branch of science that that almost didn't exist when I was a student. You know, when I was studying physics. Um, most of my friends doing biology or life sciences, it was kind of a squishy wet lab kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. Nowadays, these these folks are some of the largest users of compute in science. It's massive. Um, so I live in London. Um, we do a lot of work with Genomics England, which is a you know a, a part of the National Health Service that that looks mm-hmm. after big, really big genomics data sets for the entire country. You know, they're, they've got a mission to sequence a scary number of people in the population so that they can do massive compute on it and really start to draw insights from this massive population data um, in order to actually work out, you know, how to make big changes in public health policy so that we can keep the company, you know, keep, sorry, keep the country healthy for a long time. Super important to us all. Um, but yep. even down at a personal level, being able to, figure out that you know for example if i've got if i've got a gene that indicates for you know a high or at least a a a higher probability for a particular medical disorder uh in my future you know then my doctor can start to put me on a more frequent surveillance program for that so that it becomes a preventative preventative um uh, activity rather than a reactive one Right. And that's that's how that's one of the most interesting ways of making medicine cheaper. So so mm-hmm. I you know, I I love all this stuff because I love the I love the applications that we can put this to. But, you know, um, HPC is now turning up in machine learning. You know, machine learning really is mm-hmm. uh, an application of HPC to a specific mathematical statistical problem. Um, and so there's large language models. All of the people building those large language models, they're using HPC clusters to build those foundation models. Uh, yep. and we work with those customers every day. So I, I don't know. I think I think it's, you know, we've now reached the stage where HPC is vast enough in its application and it's in its number mm. of places that can be applied. AWS is working really, really hard to make sure that anybody with a $25 problem can have access to a system to do the 
problem solving they need. And I think with the conjunction of those two things, we're, you know, the next few years really just means we're going to see HPC turning up in every nook and cranny in the economy. Yeah, cool. yeah, absolutely. So uh, I did hear you bring about COVID and you have been here in AWS doing HPC for a while. So what kind of uh, muscle did we have to build actually to deliver for these customers in those uh, pressing need, like for those solutions? Right, well, so, so you know, the the for me, you know, one of the canonical um, examples is Moderna. Um, mm-hmm. So Moderna, you know, these were these were the folks inventing. Um, they were inventing the molecules to build um, for an RNA-based vaccine, right? And that's it's a technique that's that's really really well. It was really cutting edge back in 2020, um, but it needed a it needed a large amount of computational power so that they could actually design molecules. Right there, um, they set up, they very, very quickly set up a computational chemistry virtual lab for their scientists. And this is really, I think this is where, this is where we sort of start to, to swing the, the lens around and start to look at, at both science and compute from a different angle. Because the kind of, the people who are working in that, that COVID research environment, these are extremely rare, highly skilled people. Um, so you, you know, you're talking about, um, scientists who, you know, they live on the boundary between molecule design, um, understanding all of the biological and metabolic processes where the, you know, where these molecules are going to interact. It's an enormous field and an enormous group of fields. And so finding somebody who's adept in that field, being able to do this kind of, this kind of uh, discovery work is rare. So when you actually have those people working for you in a in a company like say Moderna, you need them to be enormously productive. And to to me that was, again I think that was the that was the standout example in in the whole COVID experience, where I, I really felt like we were making a difference because um, the scientists you know the companies were looking at these scientists as their extremely rare resource. The computer cores are actually pretty cheap by comparison, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you can have more cores whenever you need them, right? That's that's the that's the cool thing about something like Amazon EC2. You can just turn it on and just dial up and have more cores when it's necessary. And yeah, they cost a bit more. It costs more to have more cores, but compared to getting more scientists, well, it's going to take you 20 years or maybe 30 years to get more scientists. Right? Yeah. Because you have to grow them very slowly in grade school and primary school and high school <laughs> and then undergrad and postgrad. And there's, a, there's a long food chain there to get another scientist, whereas having more cores, that's actually pretty easy. So when COVID landed, we were working with people like Moderna to really turn on the tap so that they could have as many compute resources as they needed. They went and packaged that up into these virtual um, computational chemistry labs that they were giving to all of the scientists working in their groups. And that actually meant that instead of those scientists using what was a traditional HPC cluster, you know, uh, maybe 100, 200, 500 computer servers on on campus wired up in a special way and shared amongst them all, they all had access to their own personal supercomputers. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it's kind of, it's worth taking a second to think about the comparison there because that on-premises traditional way it, it basically involves putting a scheduling queue on the front 
in order to share that thing around. And as it turns out, scientists work kind of nine to five hours like the rest of us do. They all tend to do their work roughly at the same time. Um, and so there's a problem there because you're going to end up with a lot of congestion during the day and a relatively light load during the night. Unused um, resources during unused the night. Unused resources. And more to the point, what that builds is just long queues. So you've right. got a you've got a scientist that it took you 30 years to grow. Millions and millions of dollars has been invested in their education and their skills and their the equipment to get them there and the knowledge that they have to have to be sitting at that keyboard. And then you put them in a queue for sometimes 12 hours, sometimes two or three days. Whereas the Moderna folks just they had the vision that they didn't want any of those queues. They wanted their, those folks to be able to get access to the resources they needed straight away, get the insights that they needed, iterate their experimental design quickly. And as a result of that, they very quickly came up with a design for a vaccine that was in clinical trials within a few months. Uh, and that's, you know, there was, a, there was a bunch of folks around the world all trying to strive to get to, the same, to that same place. And Moderna was out there in front of nearly all of them because they just took this approach that that the scientist was the resource they had to maximize the utilization of. Um, whereas a lot of IT shops, they look at it around the other way. This is why I think it's a different way to look at things, because in a standard IT shop, your IT administrator will look at how to get, how to maximize the utilization of a cluster. Now that's a good thing in normal times, perhaps, but not if it comes at the expense of wasting the time of the people that are waiting for the results. And it, it sort of just, to me, it brings all of that experience brought in to highlight the fact that the most expensive part of a cluster is actually the person waiting for the result, not the cluster itself. Wow. I, I never thought of it that way. You know, during the pandemic, obviously getting the vaccine out was in the news, but I suppose had it not been for HPC or cloud computing, I wonder what Moderna would have had to do. They would have, would they have just had to find a way to purchase all this equipment on short notice and have somebody configure and set it up while the, while the scientists, the super smart scientists are just waiting for everything to get set up and ready for them. You got That's, it. I mean, yeah. you know, look, um, before, you know, 10 years ago before I was, before I was a, uh, uh, before I was working in the, in the cloud, um, I was working in a hardware environment and that was that really was the normal way of operating. So I, I remember doing a remember doing a lot of work for one of the one of the big um, one of the companies. I think it, actually it's it's um, um, it's Weta Digital. Right. So Weta Digital are the really amazing folks. They do CGI animation and special mm -hmm. effects for the movie industry. And and at the time I was working for a hardware company that was supplying hardware to them for. Um, for all of the all of the work that they were doing to do the Lord of the Rings movies, and um, you know the producer of the movie uh, came in at the last minute and said, I, "I really don't like the way that those scenes all look. We have to do it all again." Uh, the you know they were they were you know months away from a deadline, and it was it was an enormous amount of work that they had to do, and there was a mad scramble to buy a lot of hardware. We had to pull a lot of strings in order to get hardware out of our manufacturing over to the to the customer. We it was crazy amount of effort that had to be done to do that. Now, you know, ten years have rolled on. I work at I work at AWS now, and they actually use AWS now as well. As that's a company that's 
migrated a lot of their workloads to AWS and they're a happy reference customer for us because, you know, they they experience the same thing as well. Um, you, you know, you don't want your next great idea, whether it's a cool scene in a movie or a life-saving drug for a pandemic or for cancer, you don't want your next great idea to be stuck in a queue or waiting for a procurement cycle. Right. right. Um, the queue, the queue might only be, the queue may only be, you know, days or weeks long <laughs> to get your job to the front of the queue. And there's a lot of places where that's just normal. Um, but the queue could also be, I don't know, six or twelve month procurement cycle um, to buy a lot of hardware. That's that's craziness. Um, you, your next good idea should be able to be tested as quickly as you can possibly do it, because it's okay. again, it's the it's the person with the good idea is the rare thing that's the expensive species that we have to that we have to maximize the the efficiency of okay so with that then let's say a company they 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 got access to their scientists they want to maximize the use of their scientists don't want to order a lot of equipment can you tell us about what are some specific services or technology aws offers to support these hpc workloads yeah so so, so I think it's it's worth thinking about it from a point of view of compute storage networking. Those are the really the three important ingredients in almost every HPC cluster. And that's that's pretty much familiar to most people. I think it's just going to be the the scale and the slightly weird characteristics that are going to be that are going to be unusual to a lot of people who don't do HPC for a living. But compute storage networking, and then of course you you need tools to bring all of that together and orchestrate things so that you can push the jobs through. So if you think about those individually, um, compute, you know, we've had to build over, over many years when I first arrived in AWS, we had some fast compute instances. We called them the C-series. And I think at the time it was the C-3s and C-4s when I was arriving. Um, but these were instances with, you know, fast memory, fast processors in them. In many cases, we wound up the clock speed on those processes to get them a little bit faster than what you usually find on the street. And of course, we put faster memory in these things than you would usually find on the street as well. And so, so you know, compute there. And so we're still doing that today, but nowadays we have these HPC instances. They're literally called an HPC 7G and an HPC 7A. And we, you know, that that's the nomenclature, but we have HPC instances. These things are crazy much, you know, crazy faster than what, 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 those things were when I first joined, um, and of course, extremely high memory bandwidth. We, the 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 instance type that we just announced at uh, reInvent in December, um, has a, a peak memory bandwidth of around half a terabyte per second, which is uh, that's crazy. <laughs> like half a terabyte. Half a terabyte of RAM, of memory, per second is the peak memory bandwidth. Um, and there's a lot of HPC software workloads that can keep that busy, right? Like for example, um, Fluid Dynamics is a really good example of, of that kind of thing. So, so on the compute side, we had to build a lot of stuff when I first got here. We, we really had a lot of work to do to wind up our compute capacity to that. But but you know now you get these C and, and HPC instances, and of course, uh, the P instances with all of the really big fast GPUs in them from NVIDIA and friends, those kinds of things, you know, these are, 
you, you know, more or less, it's it's pretty normal now. If you want to get the fastest CPUs on the street, you go to the cloud. Um, okay. A lot of these things, you, you the, the CPUs you get from, say, a hardware vendor, if you were to buy and build it on-prem, you're probably getting slower CPUs. And that's just simply because, you know, uh, a lot of the work that has to happen with these CPUs is, is keeping them cool while they're running, while the code is running them extremely hot. And, and we have to do a lot of engineering work to get that heat out. Now, we know our data centers really well. We know our... Uh, we know how our air conditioning and thermals in those places work. We can optimize those things so that we can run the CPUs really hot, knowing we can get the heat out very quickly. It's difficult to do that in a in an on-prem data center unless you are specialized in this skill, and it's it's a kind of a rare skill. So, so on the compute side, we've really um, we've really you know done quite a number of really interesting instances, and then on storage. Um, you know, we have this. We have we have a lot of different storage types in AWS, but the one that I use the most in in most of my solutions that we're building are is this thing called FSx for Lustre. Lustre is a parallel file system, um, and what that means is you actually have a you have a it's sort of like a parallelized file server where you've got dozens of file server heads hooked up to hundreds, sometimes thousands of SSDs in the back. And the whole thing is stitched together in software and networking to look like a single coherent file system. And it means that we can scale this thing to, you know, hundreds of gigabytes per second, um, terabytes of bandwidth per second. And in fact, at, uh, uh, at Supercomputing, a conference that we went to in, in, in November, one of the folks on my team, we kind of showed off a little bit because we spun up a petabyte-sized Luster file system that was doing a terabyte of I/O per second, uh, and we did that in 20 minutes while standing on the booth, while standing on our, our expo booth, and it was a really good demonstration of the kind of power you can get to very, very quickly and very easily. So, compute, storage, and then then the last sort of big piece there on the hardware side is, is networking. And um, when when I arrived at AWS, we really didn't have great networking, and so it that was a barrier to being able to scale a lot of these workloads. As I, as I mentioned earlier, these these HPC workloads, they're very chatty, or well, some of them are. Some of them are extremely chatty and they need to talk to each other in order to keep synchronized, keep a synchronized view of the world um, and ensure that, that everyone is running as fast as they can. Each one of the cores is not held up by waiting for some data from another core. So that networking is really important. And for that, we had to build an entire new networking fabric. Um, so we called this thing, um, have you guys heard of it? Have you heard of Elastic Fabric Adapter? Uh, yes, I have. I was a solutions yes. architect for like high-end, it's uh, for high-end networking, right? Between instances, EC2 instances within the cloud, right? Yeah, it is. and and. And what it does, it's 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 kind of cool. So, a lot of the prevailing technologies that that get used in HPC clusters, you know, you've got these very large, numerically large clusters, and you've got a lot of networking in there, and there's a lot of pathways between A and B. Um, the the prevailing logic in most HPC cluster architectures is find the shortest path between any two points that need to communicate, and then just work really, really hard to push the packets along that pathway as quickly as you can. And that's, it's not a bad strategy. There's nothing unreasonable about it because if you have the flexibility of just starting with a clean slate, building a complete data center from scratch, 
you can design all those pathways to be as short as you possibly can make them, to be as clean as you make them. And then, of course, once you've built it, it stays static like that for a really long time. And that's a normal HPC center. It doesn't work very well in the cloud because the cloud is just constantly growing. You know, we're backing up trucks every day to our data centers and pouring in rows and rows of racks. And so that networking environment is complex. It changes very quickly um, and it's expanding. And so EFA does this really cool thing. It uses this datagram protocol called SRD. And what, what SRD does is it looks at the fabric and when it sees the complexity of the fabric, you know, large numbers of pathways between any two points, what SRD does is it swarms the packets over as many pathways as it can at once. And so instead of finding the fastest pathway and pushing the packets along there, it tries to use lots of pathways and pushes the packets over multiple of them at the same time. And the, the, the outcome of that is just as good as the best on-premises architecture where you know, you've done this sort of very, this highly optimized cabling and highly optimized arrangement of everything. So, so you actually end up getting a result which is just as good as what you can get in a normal on-prem environment, but it's it's adaptable to this highly, you know, this massively expanding um, network, and that actually means that we can then, you know, we can continue to massively expand the network inside our data centers, and actually just keep um, lots and lots of, you know, lots of interesting new things coming all the time without worrying that the complexity of the network is going to get in the way of the efficiency of the code. It's, um, I, I was skeptical when I, first, when I first saw the plans for it, but once we built it and demonstrated it, uh, I'm a card-carrying member of the fan club now. <laughs> Whoa, okay. So it sounds like high-performance computing, it really includes high-performance storage and high-performance networking and technologies like SRD, that's, that sounds to me like something that would otherwise be very difficult for any customer to try to build on their own, right? Well, I, and... I think with a lot of these things, we're now getting to the place where really the innovations in the hardware really need to be done by somebody who can do it at scale. Mm -hmm. So it's, you, you can't really, you know, it's, look, I guess for a long time, nobody's really been out designing their own chips. Um, but likewise, designing your own networking now, I, mm -hmm. I think it would be really hard for somebody designing their own networking in their own data center to be able to achieve the efficiencies and the performance that we can get running it at a massive scale. Because right, the, right. You know, the thing that came out of the SRD experiment is that we've now got, a, we've now got a, a, an approach to building a fabric where as the fabric gets bigger and it becomes more complex, it actually gets faster because inherent in that larger fabric is more bandwidth. So, so it actually, it, it, it doesn't, you know, the scale doesn't become a challenge. In fact, it becomes an advantage. I think it'd be really hard to do any of that on a small scale anymore. I just think it's, um, you know, you're missing out on something if you're trying to do it at a small scale. Okay. But let's keep in mind, right? The user of HPC, it might be, an aerodynamics engineer trying to design an airplane or a chemist or a doctor trying to design a new drug, they're not computer storage or networking experts. Does, does AWS offer any kind of tool that helps the HPC user to 
right. put all these pieces together and, and just, hey, I just want to launch a cluster and yeah. here's my and the, job. And look, just run you're it. absolutely right. So so your average, you know, your well, average, there's nothing average about a, a scientist or engineer, but but well, your your run of the mill scientist. <laughs> but your run of the mill scientist or engineer is definitely they they definitely don't want to try and assemble all this stuff from parts. So um, that's where we, you know, that's where we've got two really big flagship uh, bits of product. Actually, we've got a third one that just came along in, you know, about a month or so ago. And I'll tell you about, I'll sort of give you a headline of all three. So parallel cluster, that is that is sort of more or less the canonical way to build a standard HPC cluster in the cloud. So it's a, it's a tool. It looks awfully like an HPC, like an AWS service, but it it's a downloadable tool. You install on an instance, and then you start designing your clusters. And you tell Parallel Cluster what kind of cluster you want and what characteristics you expect it to have from a point of view of storage, compute, and networking, how many, how many different job queues you expect it to have. You tell Parallel Cluster the whole detail of what you, what you want. Parallel Cluster goes off and builds it for you. And so you end up actually with a, an HPC cluster environment that looks super, super familiar to what you would be using on on premises, right? So so far so good, and that that has unlocked an enormous amount of, of potential for a lot of folks because once you can build a cluster from uh, you know essentially a template that you define in a text file, you can build different clusters for different purposes. So you can have one for the computational chemists that's really optimized for their environment. You can have one for the fluid dynamics folks, really optimized for their environment. And a completely separate one for the genomics folks, really optimized for theirs. So, the, the you know this is this is where you get a, a big bunch of advantages here, and you can have a small number of people managing a quite a lot of clusters now, because when you're managing a cluster, you're managing a template at this point. Um, if the cluster stops doing what you needed to do, you can chuck it out and iterate and go to a new one, and you're not you know this isn't like a a four or five year cycle for building a cluster now. It's it could be a four or five week or four or five day cycle if you needed it to, right? So parallel cluster is a big deal in solving that problem. And then we've got AWS Batch, which is a slightly different spin on things because Batch is a, <clears throat> a you know, while parallel cluster looks really familiar to kind of, you know, what I'll call old school HPC, Batch is very different because Batch is a container-oriented service. Um, it it it's totally it looks nothing like what you would run in an on-premises environment. But it's but because it's cloud-native, it actually really knows how to exploit the scale and the diversity of all of the instances in cloud. Now that, it's 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 you know these two different tools, they're different approaches to solving the same problem. Um, batch batches gets a lot of use in people doing. Um, you know, people doing um, autonomous, autonomous vehicle simulation and genomics, especially. Mm -hmm. So all of our, almost all of our large genomics customers are using Batch in the back end behind their genomics pipelines. Um, all of our, you know, most of our really big CFD customers, um, engineering customers, distributed machine learning customers, those folks are training their models on parallel cluster in, in an environment that makes sense for their code. So it's, it's kind of good that you get a choice between these two things and you're not you're not stuck with trying to use one you know what do they say the uh that that old saying about you know if your only tools a hammer everything looks like a mm -hmm. nail um <laughs> this is just 
this is one of those cases where you can you can have different different types of hammers. <laughs> so batch and cluster are two different hammers that customers. Yeah, can that's use. right. Two different hammers, but okay. you know both of them both of them are big hammers too. Um, batch <clears throat> runs some of the largest workloads we have ever run in AWS. Um, you know, one of our one of our customers at Harvard uh, ran a workload that ran close to six million cores uh, earlier mm -hmm. this year. You know, that's right. that's enormous. Like, yeah. Think, and like, to the user, that's about... six million. Yeah. Is that a line in a config file that they can change the number? Like more or less. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. Like that. You know, they. What was what was particularly cool about that, and there's a paper coming on this soon that's going to have a lot more of the details, but what was particularly cool about that was that when they were scaling up to those 6 million cores, um, and, and these are 6 million cores were all operating at the same time, when they were scaling up the cluster to run those 6 million cores, it was pulling in tens of thousands of cores um, per minute and adding them to the cluster. Right. So this is this is a this is a really this is aggressively large and aggressively fast. Um, and, you know, they, that, that those kinds of workloads are becoming, I mean, six million cores is not an everyday workload, although it's every day for us. We've got, you know, we've got tens of millions of cores in the, in 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 the flow all the time. But but those really super large workloads they're becoming more common, particularly in drug design and drug discovery, because it'll, you know, some of the some of the methods that are being created now for testing compounds to see if they'll they'll make a, you know, if they'll be able to make an impact on a disease, for example. Some of these tests now are tests that you can do in math with an HPC cluster. And once you can do them in math with an HPC cluster, well, you could probably do hundreds of thousands of them in math with a with a really big HPC cluster. And, you know, and so that instead of the old school way of approaching drug design by going through a compound database and, you know, step by step trying to weed out, you know, what might be the the the, the good possibilities and then testing them in a lab on a cell or on a person or on a lab rat or something, you can now test these things in silicon in math. Um, and you could test out hundreds of thousands of them in a weekend. And so that means, you know, some of those things we were talking about earlier with COVID, for example, shortening the timeline to getting a potential drug you can take to a clinical trial. If you can knock a decade off that thing, just just think about how many lives you might be saving. Right. So so this is this is this is a big deal. Being able to do these kinds of workloads, run them at scale. And, you, you know, we customers individual customers may not be running these things at that kind of scale full time they'll run them yeah. at that kind of scale for a weekend mm -hmm. and then spend the next 3 years working out which ones go to clinical trial and and doing those tests um, but again it, it's decades faster than the old way of of solving the same problem absolutely i did also hear you mention about dot normal vehicles and machine learning ai ml is at top of mind these days can you also elaborate a little bit about the role of hpc in ai and machine learning yeah yeah so well so you know at the basis of at the basis of artificial intelligence are these 
machine learning models, these deep learning models that have been trained by massive amounts of data. Um, and it, and it's a it's a similar problem to what we were talking about earlier for whether it's genomics or COVID vaccines or CFD. If you can throw a lot of computers at the problem, you can solve the problem sooner. Um, the the kind of models that you know even even with the deep learning, even with the really cool breakthroughs in deep learning that we've seen in the last particularly the last five years, but certainly the last ten, it was always possible to take those deep learning models and apply them to fairly large data sets and train a model to do some something pretty sophisticated. Now, in the early days, pretty sophisticated was reading, you know, reading the, the addresses on envelopes, right, at the post office, um, or reading license plates on cars. You know, that's that was sort of sophisticated as it was back then. To get these models to be much more sophisticated, you really have to throw a lot more data at them. And to throw that lot more data and to come up with a more complex model that's able to do more complicated things, not only do you need more data, but you also need a lot more compute to be able to sift through that data faster. So it just becomes a it just becomes a scale problem. Um, now these these deep learning um, these deep learning techniques, what's what's hard about them is they've got the same kind of characteristic that CFD has, which is that they're very very chatty. Um, these models, they need to move a lot of data around and they also need to chat, you know, the cores that are all participating in this massive parallel job, they all need to chat to each other a lot. So you actually need very fast networking. And when we talk about fast networking in AI and, and distributed ML, what we're talking about here are, you know, um, tens and hundreds and thousands of gigabits. So, you know, so we're, we're now producing HPC instances, well, more to the point, GPU instances with, you know, three or more terabits per second of EFA attached to them. And then, you know, a lot of our teams are working with people like NVIDIA to produce these really big specialist libraries to do the very low level communications very quickly and very efficiently so that we can you can stretch these distributed machine learning jobs across hundreds or thousands of GPUs. So, you know, like I said before, it's you know sometimes it's a hard gig to go and build these big data centers with the GPUs, but it's an even harder gig to actually get the software to work on them really super efficiently. And so, you know, that's what that's what we've been been working on. So making sure that EFA works really well uh, as as part of a, an environment to support this this layer of software called Nickel, and that's the NVIDIA communications uh, communication and collectives library. That's the thing that that is like the glue that holds all of these distributed machine learning models together. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of engineering work there, but but at the root of it all, it's mostly the same HPC techniques and a lot of the same technology that we built for HPC that's that's that, that we're now making available uh, for distributed ml which is what's driving this this ai revolution that we're seeing yep we covered a lot today where can customers get started in hpc well so it's pretty easy um first i the the first thing i would suggest that they do is just go to aws.amazon.com hpc that's our hpc landing page there's a lot of good mm -hmm. material there um we've also got a community site where they can find a lot of 
I think, more accessible material that will answer more of their questions. And that's our community site at, at day1hpc.com. Uh, the day one is is sort of the, the reference to our day one culture here in Amazon. Um, on that community site, there's a lot of information there. But more to the point, there's a lot of videos that they'll find, a lot of blog posts that are there um, that'll slowly give them an introduction to HPC to AWS. Um, you know, there's there's stuff coming out there, you know, a few times a week. There's new articles being posted. So, um, you know, it's not very hard to find something that's going to tickle your intellectual curiosity amongst all of that. Um, and like I said before, you know, the the number of use cases that we're seeing uh, that are getting applied, you know, I I never expected life sciences and, you know, and biology to become a compute workload when I was mm -hmm. an undergrad. I just, I just didn't see that coming. Um, I thought the biology was always going to be you know, a, a a wet lab, squishy kind of science, but now here it is, and it's and it's it's definitely arrived. Um, we're now seeing HPC getting into almost every nook and cranny in the economy. So, going to some of those places and you know just starting to get your head around some of the things that we're doing and following the learning path on the day one site, um, that's actually a really good way to to start opening your eyes and realizing how much HPC is actually out there everywhere. Thanks for those resources. Um, we covered a lot today, but I know we barely scratched the surface. So I want to thank you for cramming a, what seems like a complex subject and making it more accessible. So yeah, with that, I think you've definitely helped our customers today rethink their HPC strategy in the cloud, Brendan. I, I hope I have. And, you know, if there's if there's any more that we can do, um, just make sure the customers reach out, come and find us. Uh, you know, we're we're always we're always looking to get feedback from folks. Uh, and if there's anybody out there finding it hard to, you know, to come to grips and understand with, you know, some of this stuff, um, then we're probably not doing a good enough job. And there's there's feedback already. So, um, you know, we definitely we want to hear from want to hear from everybody who's who's interested in applying this really cool technique to solving a lot of the world's hardest problems or even some of the world's easiest and, you know, um, most immediately impactful problems too. Well, hopefully we can make it seem easier. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We would also like to thank our listeners for joining us today. Hopefully we you have learned a little bit about the HPC. If not, feel free to share uh, your feedback through uh, the resources that we will be providing. Please send us your feedback by emailing us at rethinkpodcast at amazon.com. Thank you. Until next time. <laughs>